last week about where we were in this and where we're going to go. And so this will be sort of a stab into that and maybe in the first of the year I'll finish this out along with the book of James and then we'll move into some Old Testament narratives. But specifically speaking, I want to focus today, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in, mm, (laughs) as we say in the music business, the pickup of verse 3. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, verse 4, he is puffed up and with conceit understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I'm going to stop there for a second because I'm not talking about this this morning. Okay, I've already talked about this some years ago, but I need to tell you what the but is for in verse 6, which is where I want to be. But. And so when you see a but, you have to stop and ask why. What is the contrast there? So what's happening is we see people who are theological warriors, who are excited about their ideas and their philosophies and their expectations in the context of what the Bible is taught, and they've made a mess of the church because they've insisted on these things at the cost of intimacy, they've insisted on these things at the cost of friendship, they've insisted on these things at the cost of love, and the correction in their false teaching is to stop doing it, not to be changed in their mindset. So I just want to remind you of that. When we correct error in the church, we're not going to always change people's minds. And we do not judge them based on what they think. We judge them based on how they submit to the word of God in correction. And when I say judge, in other words, we don't make consequences in that context. So someone who says that they're intimate with Christ and the gospel of grace will also be intimate with his word in far as much as the word tells us to do certain things for the sake of intimacy, for the sake of unity, for the sake of peace, even when we're dealing with heresy, which was what was happening here in Ephesus. And so these people who continue to deal with this, continue to try to become highly spiritual, whether they're right or wrong in their understanding of a theology, when they're wrong in their appropriation of their actions at the cost of At the cost of love, they're puffed up, they quarrel, they create envy, they create friction, they create suspicion. And many of us have been in that situation where we've either been the one causing it or the victims of it, or both. And so we know what it looks like. But the contrast of that to the instructions of the people here is but. See, godliness with contentment is great gain. So here's what, here's what Paul is teaching this young elder. No matter what gain you think you have, and this is what Paul has said this to the Philippians, right? I considered it all loss, and any gain that I had was nothing compared to the priceless gain of Christ as my Lord. I've counted all loss. So godliness with contentment is great gain. Theological perfection, theological debate is not godliness. It is not, let me say that again very clearly, it is not godliness in any form, in any way, 
in any, any, for, through any means if it creates tension and dissension amongst the sheep of Christ, amongst the mild, the meek, the lowly. We don't do that. Jesus is very clear about when the religious leaders and the teachers of his day would cause burden of fear and shame and guilt and oppression theologically on the people that may or may not have even understood who he was, but he was very clear. When you cause one of these young children to stumble, he's got some things to say about it. He says, it would be better for you to be tossed into the ocean. It would have been better for you to not have been born because I'm coming after you when you mess with my kids. You know, that's sort of the sentiment that Jesus has. But I want to focus today not on that, but on the antithesis, on the positive doctrine, the positive teaching that Paul then provides, not just to Timothy, but for us today. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For, and he explains it, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Full stop. Now think about this for a second. <laughs> I mean, how many of us right now would be content with the clothes on our backs for the rest of our lives? You're thinking, man, if I'd have known this was the last time this was what I was going to have, I'd have worn something different because I have a jacket that I really like more than this one or I have a pair of shoes that are a little bit more comfortable or I didn't change my underwear. Oh, no. I mean, you know, like if I just had a clean pair of socks, whatever it might be, there's probably a sense in some of us and most of us that would say, mm, I don't know that I could really be content with that. And as I said last week and the week before and years prior, this isn't, and preaching is not to make you feel guilty. Because the gospel is not about bringing guilt out of you or conviction in the context of, just, of judgment so that you may change your life. The gospel is about, is about relieving the guilt. A couple of years before we moved into this building, we were in another space about a half mile down the road. It was very small, very hot. It was, and I remember teaching on a Tuesday night. We did Tuesday night services at the time. I remember teaching on Tuesday night, and I was teaching out of Hebrews. And in Paul's writing to the Hebrews, he brought a real tension in that, do not fall again unto what? Unto unbelief. If you return into sin in this context, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. And the timbre, the tone of that is extremely just, it's negative. It's negative. It puts us in a place where we begin to feel the tension and we begin to personalize it, we begin to internalize it, and then we come to the place of going, oh my gosh, I am in big trouble. I can't overcome this. I'm condemned. And then you keep reading, and Paul takes that tension that balls up on purpose. So like a good movie script, you don't breathe. You ever been in a movie, and you're watching it, and you haven't breathed? And you get to breathe. So the Bible does the same thing. Paul did the same thing in some of this stuff. And we see that tension, but then we can breathe. It's like Paul telling the Thessalonians, keep yourself in the love of God by trusting in Him. Oh. He keeps us, right? That's the promise. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Himself cannot separate us from His love. So, here's the tension. I'm not content. 
I'm not content with the clothes on my back. I'm not content with it. Because, you know, if we have food and clothing, but those who desire to be rich, I want to be rich. I mean, you know, this is what we do. Oh, no, woe is me. It's not about woe is me. This is some practical instruction to this pastor. And he'll go on and say, he'll say, flee these things, young man. Oh, man of God. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue steadfastness. Pursue gentleness. Fight for the fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And on and so forth. And then, as elders, we are charged to teach others this in the presence of many, that we may learn to grow content in the gospel. So I'm not saying these things today to bring a charge against you. And the Holy Spirit may say, you know what? You're not content, and that's okay, but it doesn't condemn us before our Father. He knows us. We're not pulling one over on him. We're not, he's not going, oh, man, until that sermon, I didn't know that James was discontent. He knows me. He loves me anyway in spite of me, and he loves me because of his glory revealed through me by my confession of hope in the Son that he sent for me. And that's the confession that you can have too, beloved. And so today, as we look at this text, I want you to see that the concept of contentment is very hard. We talked about it some weeks ago where we looked at fulfillment being the sandwich bread that holds contentment and joy and peace and all that kind of stuff and happiness. And those things ebb and flow, but fulfillment, contentment is right close to it. It's like the surface patina. It's like the layer of skin on top of fulfillment. And our identity and our understanding of who we are is found in Christ Jesus because of the gospel, because of the grace of God, the simple grace of God that establishes in us by the power of God and the Spirit through the Word a resting faith, a childlike, non-ambitious resting, knowing that our needs are met, knowing that mom and dad are going to be there in the morning when the sun comes up, knowing that the bed's not going to vanish, even though we may know without a shadow of a doubt there's a monster in the closet, we don't fear because parents are near, right? That's where I would usually use some tactical expression about shooting things, but I'm trying to get away from that. So violent. In 2008, I was pastoring a church in the Tri-Cities of the East Bay of California. And for the first time in my life, I had divorced myself from a lot, a lot of cultural churchianity. And I found that the more I thought about these things, the harder life became. And so one day, I'm in this little thrift store or whatever, and I see this metal stamp sign, and it simply said, pun intended, simplify. It's like, this is $2 well spent. I went, took it, went to my office. As I walked in my door, I put it three inches from the ceiling, and I nailed it there so that every time I walked into my study, I would see simplify because it was the mantra that I lived by and the simplicity of life and the simplification of my thoughts because I'm not a simple person. I, do. I mean, and lately when I'm asleep, I'm working out problems through crazy dreams, you know? I'm not a simplified person. I'm a complex person with a lot of complex ideas and a lot of complex emotions. And many of you are the same way. But it's, it's who I am. It's what makes me me. And sometimes when we hear the word simplify, or just to keep it simple, we think that that means to arrest that and throw it away, 
to not be who we are authentically, but that's not the case. The Bible does not tell us to throw away who we are. The Bible says to understand who we are, and more importantly, understand who we are in Christ, and even further, moreover, to understand whose we are in grace. Who do we belong to? As the scripture would say, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. The scripture would say these things. And then we work this stuff out. We're supposed to not get it and then go after it. We're supposed to work it out. We may have it and understand it today and then simply just not understand it tomorrow. We may live it out well for a little season and then when something happens in our lives and we just completely lose sight of everything. That is normal. That is okay. It doesn't bring condemnation. For there is now, right now, this present day with my voice speaking to your eardrums, no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ. So here's what the devil says through people. Well, maybe you're not in Christ. <gasps> and then the journey is to be found in Christ rather than rest in Him. And that's not good news. If we're seeking to be found in Christ, we certainly haven't found Him. Just rest. And I know it seems like a play on words, but beloved, I'm telling you right now, we need to simplify life and we need to simplify the gospel. We need to simplify things because the complexities of life create stress and chaos that's already there at an exponential rate. So when I put that sign in my office, in that moment, so for a few years, I was living probably the most simplified life I had ever lived, more focused. And I thought, never again complex. Oh, never again. Well, you can't help when complex people bring complex problems into a complex world. And then they ring your doorbell. You can't help it when you yourself ring your own doorbell and bring garbage into it. But I'm thinking in the context of contentment, that comes through simplicity. It comes through simplicity. We can be fulfilled and be in chaos. We can find peace in the midst of the storm. But if we want contentment, there's really not room for chaos. There's really not room for angst. So where is that found? I believe it's found in simplicity. So this anchor of 1 Timothy 6, 6-8, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. If we've got our basic needs, if we're not naked and hungry, we will be Content. I love how Paul says that. He says, you should be. He doesn't say that. He says, you will be. Like he says to the church of Philippi, have this mind among you. A big charge to have the mind of Jesus, the God-man, which is already yours in him. Though he was equal with God, he did not take his divinity, something to be made much of, to be grasped, but made himself a slave, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Because of this, then the Father exalted him that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will say the truth that Jesus is the Lord of all. Contentment. So there's five little parts and then a little essay at the end for today. There's a dilemma when it comes to thinking about these things in simplicity, I mean, 
our TV went on the blink, so we got us a newer TV. And, you know, the, the details, I mean, the other TV we had was 10 years old. And I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, look at all the different things that you can put on the television now. You want to download this app, this app? I mean, I've never seen so many television apps. So I downloaded everything. And I spent like an hour scrolling through all this. this a couple of months ago, and I, and I spent like an hour scrolling through all these different apps, and I'm looking, I'm going, look at all the choices. I can have 1,143 channels here, 916 channels here, or I can watch movies over here. Wow, there are 5,000 movies. And I spent an hour trying to find what I wanted to watch instead of watching anything. And then I was like, well, i got to go to bed. Now, I've since taken off all but about 10 of these apps. But it took a month or so to get through them. And I started remembering that this week and I was talking about simplification and being content. And I remember the little 13-inch black and white television. It was black and white because it wasn't color. And it was also black face with a white frame. And it sat literally about this much. It was 13-inch screen and it was like three inches on the outside. It had a handle on it and a little rabbit ear antenna that came out like this little circle thing for whatever that picked up. We never got anything off of that, so we tore that off. And I was a kid, and it was 13 channels on a dial. All but four of those channels were snow. But yet on the evenings or the afternoon, there was never not something to watch for hours. And we were at the beck and call. We were, at the, we were at the robbery, if you will, of the program manager of NBC, ABC, and CBS, and then GPTV, Georgia Public Television, who also syndicated BBC's stuff like Sherlock Holmes and uh, Doctor Who, of which I have devoured through my lifetime. I digress. The point of that is this, is that there were very little choices, but we had a lot of contentment. And now we have all the choices and we don't know what to do. So there's an illusion in our day. There's a paradox of choice. And I won't get into the psychology of that and I certainly won't get into the philosophy of that, but if those of you who enjoy those things uh, as a hobby, even the theology, go for it. We'll talk over coffee one day and then somebody will call and want to know where we are. But spiritual excess even. What if that's just this, this paradox of choice? Sometimes the modern dilemma is that we think that if we have more choices, we have more freedom. If we have more freedom, we're more content. That's not the truth. Because more choices bring complexity. And this is true not just in the world at large or the secular world. It's not just true for the fact we go to a restaurant and they give us a nine-page menu. How many different ways can you make rice, chicken, and burritos? I mean, and corn tortillas. I don't, I don't need 40 choices. Just meat, bread, ah, there we go. Quit giving me all these choices. It's not freedom. It's not freedom in the mind. It's not freedom. I could eat the same thing every day for the rest of my life. I could wear the same set of clothes every day. For the, I have to wash them all the time. But, I mean, I could wear them every day. I could wear the same outfit. And if you gave me 24 hours to pick an outfit, I could pick it right now on my head. I don't need the choices. I like them, but it's not liberty. And the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We have all these choices. We have all these ideas. We have all these wants and all these desires. We see something else. We see this. We see that. John talks about it. Do not love the word of the things of the world. The lust of the eyes. 
the lust of the things we see and we just like, oh, I'd love to have that. I'd love to have that. How many of the I love to have things do we have in the garage that we wish we could sell for a loss? How many of these I love to have downloads do we not even know where they are? How many of I love to have digital media are gone forever? I'm like, DVDs, CDs, LPs. You used to couldn't fit the LPs I owned in the back of a pickup truck, triple stacked, and now I've got, I can't find but that many. An LP, long play record, vinyl. <laughs> Some of you are like, what's that mean? And now I hoard digital material. I have to have information. I turn everything that I like into a PDF and I stick it on a drive and then I have triple redundancy at my house. I back it all up every night, 9 p.m. But spiritual excess. Sometimes we have spiritual excess because of the inundation with choices. Well, you're going to serve God this way. Do you have this spiritual gift? Do you have all this? I mean, when do we get a menu of spiritual gifts? When do we have to come up with all these different systems and these different structures and these different frameworks? And I love frameworks. I've written three frameworks in the last eight months about specific things. But they're not prudent for us, so you won't hear them unless you talk to me later. The idea of being more for God rather than resting in the declaration of who we already are often overcomes us. See, contentment transcends circumstances. Paul talks to the church of Philippi. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. These are his words. For I have learned that in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. And he's talking about there in the context of finances, of having food. He says, I know what it's like to starve and have nothing. And I know what it's like to have everything I need in surplus. In every circumstance, I've learned that the secret of being, the, excuse me, the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger, abundance and need, is that I can do anything. I can endure everything. I can endure anything. Through Christ who strengthens me. Now I know we butcher that text. And we put that text on everything. Every sporting event. Every final exam. And it's not misappropriated. You can play this game by the mercy of God. I remember the MVP year of the last. I think it was one of the last years I played baseball. And I broke my foot in a swimming incident. <laughs> running on a slick carport after jumping out of a pool, playing stupid stuff. And I bent the toes. I broke two of my toes on my right foot. And then I had to play baseball that night. Thankfully, I knocked in two runs, and I didn't even have to clear the bases. I was like, what am I going to do? Won the game. It was good. I could do all things through Christ. I can run the bases with a broken toe. You see, see, sometimes that's how we implicate that. And it's just such a weak thing. What if I'd lost my leg? What well, if I could never play baseball? I can endure that. What if I lost my ability to even do anything? I can endure that. Sometimes choices are taken away from us, not to teach us a lesson, but to bring us contentment. You think about the context of the things that we have in the world. This modern consumerism. Just our own properties and how much it takes of our time and our thoughts and our spiritual commitments to just maintain things. And it doesn't mean that we need to go and remove everything. We just need to be aware of it. I want you to hear that, church. We need to be aware of it. Because we get to the place where we're thinking, well, we're not, I'm not content anymore. I need to do something. Well, I'll tell you what you need to do in a minute. What you don't need to do is listen 
to the urgency of the fear and the condemnation. So what does the Bible say about simplicity and contentment? In 1 Timothy, we see here. Matthew 6.33, Ecclesiastes 5.10, they talk about materialism. They talk about emphasizing spiritual priorities. Matthew 6, Jesus speaking in verse 33, he says, you know this verse, seek, I can't say it except in the King James, seek ye first, you know. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things will be added unto you. Ecclesiastes 5. You know Ecclesiastes, Solomon's melancholy expose. Woe is me, life is terrible, nothing new under the sun. What's it, what's it worth living? He answers it. To be found in God. To rest for his name's sake. Solomon says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with it. Nor he who loves abundance with his income. This is vanity. What is vanity? It's just empty. To be vain means to have no worth. The irony behind that is that we want more to fill up the coffers. We want more choices. We want more complexity. We want more knowledge. But yet what we're doing is we're stuffing more into a bag that's empty. And the more we put in there, the emptier it gets. So what does it mean to be content? Are we just supposed to worry ourselves with food and clothing? No, we're not supposed to worry ourselves with anything. How does God's seeking kingdom first reshape our priorities? That depends on how we understand God's kingdom. And I will say this without the time this morning to really unpack it. If you listen to everything that I've taught over the years, you will find it in pieces, maybe I will spend an entire Sunday on this in December. But the culture in the Christian community and the Christian ideology that we live in in America is not the kingdom. Matter of fact, even the way we do congregationalism is, is not necessarily to be misunderstood as the kingdom. And at the same time, we don't need this ethereal idea, this mystical thing. There is a tangible reality of God's kingdom in Christ. And then there is a future promise of God's kingdom in Christ. And I think, as Paul would say, we, for two weeks in a row, we referred to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says to put our minds on that which is eternal rather than that which is temporal. Our focus, our majority, our drive, our passion. And in doing so, whatever we have to do here, whether we're working on a relationship in a marriage or with our children, or we're working on relationships in the church or at our job or in our community, we're doing so as unto the Lord for his glory. It brings a contentment and a joy, and it reframes our understanding of why we're doing what we're doing for the sake of God's name rather than just to try to find some happiness in it. And then in turn, that gives us some happiness because we find fulfillment in being part of God's kingdom. And some people would say to me, and they've said to me through the years, Tippins, you just, you philosophize way too much in the context of Scripture. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that compliment. Because the Bible commands us to meditate on the Word of God day and night. We don't, meditation is not mantra. Meditation is, is twofold, and I do meditate. I meditate physiologically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Sometimes in extremely imbalanced ways. 
But if I'm to meditate on the Word of God, it speaks. He speaks. And when He speaks, I hear. Why? Because the Spirit of God in me causes me to hear. I know the voice of my Savior. And in doing so, then I work it out and think. You know, one of the reasons we don't think is because we're just getting the answers. Oh, theology on call, Sunday night, 6.30, whatever time it was. You know, let's ask this question of Pastor Tippins. And I loved it. It was great. It helped me think. Y'all were helping me. I miss that sometimes. But at the same time, you always know that my answers were driven, driving you back to the text, driving you back to your own understanding, driving you back to the basics, not just telling you what is, but telling you how I came to that conclusion that you also may test my premises. And people say, well, I don't understand why we have to do this at all, because the Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. The application of that is not get rid of everything that's not to wear or to eat. The application of that is to be mindful of the gospel of grace that Jesus Christ is the God of the universe who came into this world, took a body for himself, lived a life of complete righteousness in obedience to the Father, and he died on a cross to substitute himself for us. And that substitution was qualified, that substitution was guaranteed, that substitution was sufficient because he did not stay dead. For the wages of sin is death, so the sinless man of God, the sinless God-man, was raised to life. It's a very simple story. You see why simplification is necessary? If we make that complex, if we dig into the weeds of theological philosophy and historical theology, oh my Lord, I love weeding there. I love it. It is a hobby. Much like the deflection of cue balls and different types of shafts. Much like contemplating the absence of time. Yeah, <laughs> you know where I'm at. One of you. <laughs> but it's not necessary. The gospel is the, the, the story of Jesus, the man, the son of God, who died to save his people. And he finished the work and it's done. The gospel is the good news of what has been done. It's not an offer. It's not an option. It's not a, it's not a sales pitch. It's a proclamation. And we need to think about that. We need to think about that. We need to simplify that. Because if we don't simplify grace, if we don't simplify the gospel, then we're never going to be able to live it. We're never going to be able to live content, with contentment. And the Bible calls us to live a, content, a life of contentment. You can't argue that. So if it calls that, and I'm a shepherd of this church, and I'm supposed to be working this out on my own life, that I may share that journey with you, because I can't do anything else, then... I think it deserves some time. I think these things deserve time, and I think that it's well within the confines of exegesis, of exegetical preaching, of good oversight to really work these things out. So I believe we need to embrace simplicity in our lives to such a degree that it becomes, I don't know, like a moving sidewalk upon which we stand. 
and we find ourselves running up the wrong way or being carried away in some windstorm, whether it be mind or body or circumstances, whether it be fear or hopelessness or despair, anger, frustration, whatever it might be, we can recognize that we're moving or we're standing still. We're moving in the wrong direction or we're standing still or we're walking against the wind or we're trying to go up the down escalator. It takes a lot more effort than to just ride the wind of grace. So we need to see the simplicity of the scripture. I mean, think about the call of Moses. Let's just take a few things for a second. I could start with Adam and Eve, but I don't want to get in that because we're going to get in that later. I mean, let's look at the call of Moses. Moses is put into a basket and sent up to the palace because he was about to die as a firstborn child. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Pharaoh's wife finds him, raises him as a son. He, ra he is raised in the palace with prosperity and privilege. And then he kills an Egyptian guard who is beating a Hebrew slave, and he has to flee as a murderer to Midian. There in Midian, he becomes a shepherd of sheep, obviously. And then God speaks to him. Through a bush that's on fire but not consumed. Remember? Y'all know the story. And Moses sees this, bur this bush burning and he, he goes up there to it and what's happening? What in the world? And God speaks, Moses, take off your shoes for you're standing in the place of righteousness. This place is set apart for me. That's what holy ground means. Holy means set apart. So he fell to his face and God told him I want you to go back to Egypt where you are a wanted man and I want you just to tell I want you just to open your mouth and I want you to say the God of glory the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob the God over you Pharaoh is ordering you to let his people go and I want you just to say that and Moses argues <laughs> The scripture says Moses wasn't able to speak very well. So God says, well, take your brother to speak for you. Well, I just can't go alone. I need some weaponry. Okay, here's a stick. Just take this stick. That's where it came from, I guess. Speak softly and carry a big stick. If you know your history. <laughs> and so he goes, and the simplicity of it is, is that Moses had no skill. Moses had no expertise. Moses had no plan. Moses just simply went according to God. Long before that, Abram, same thing, Ur, Chaldean, worshiping the moon at the ziggurat. Go, where? Doesn't matter, I'm saying go. So he just goes. Simple. It's simple. Didn't worry about what was going to happen. Probably in a little bit, you know, we worry. We see the, but look at the simplicity. Look at the contentment. The simplicity. The simple instruction that Jesus just existed in the world for 30 years without revealing who he was. Simple. He played with toys. He sang songs. He danced. He fell down. He got boo-boos. He got stomach bugs. 
He had happy days. He had sad days. His parents were irritated with him. We see that. That he just simply did what the Father had sent him to do. He just simply lived. Beloved, one of the main reasons that we can't be content is because we don't live simply. We don't simply live. And there are things that make some life, some of our lives complex, and there are some things that we can never get away from in their complexity, but it doesn't mean we can't approach them simply with contentment in the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, there's a couple of things how we can do that. Two major things and then some little sub-things in my head that would fall into one of these two categories. The first thing is there are practical things that we can do. First practical thing is to consider our ambitions. What do we really want? Because the book of James says, the apostle James says, you know, don't ever say we're going to do this and do that. We're going to make a profit here or there. Because the reality of it is if the Lord doesn't will it, it's not going to happen no matter how hard we work. Some of the hardest working people in the world are the poorest. And some people that never lift a finger just fall into it. I'm like, how does this guy get that? Not even smart. You just show up at the right place, at the right coffee shop. The right person sees them. He goes, yeah, I could work with that. Here's a billion dollars. What? It's not about working hard. It's about the will of God. It's about what he has determined for us. So where we are and what we're doing right now, what we're going through, exactly where we've come from, from that point to this point right now is where we are. And where we are is exactly where God has placed us. So let's find contentment in that. I want so much more, y'all. And when I say that, I'm not even talking about finances. I'm not even talking about stuff. I'm not even talking about things or prosperity or, or position or even ministry. Those things I say, I want so much more. I want depth. I want understanding. I want the ability to just open my mouth and just share simply the the journey that I've been on and the understandings that I may have that somebody else may be able to glean and just be free. I want more. But I have to be content with what I am. And so do you. Otherwise, we run this race ragged. Hard work is not going to escape us. Trials are not going to escape us. But contentment can be here. And I believe simplicity is the key to that. Some practical ways to live a simpler life. Minimizing our possessions. <laughs> yeah, it's, a little, it's got so much maintenance. We'll get rid of some stuff. I need more closets. How many handy houses do we have to buy? Get rid of it. How many implements do we need for our tractor? How many magazines do we need for our rifle? How many, right, well, that's, I'm not even going to go there. How many pairs of shoes? We need to reduce distractions. How many things do we go after that distract us from intimacy with ourselves, with our family, with our Lord? Because I'm going to promise you this. There is nobody praying and worshiping to the point of losing sight of their relationships. 
I've never met a person. You may be it. Come up. I want to meet you and talk more. I want to spend a lot of time with you because I need to hear what you have to say. But I've never known that spiritual things would take precedence over everything else. Now, some people think that they're spiritual, but they're usually hobbies attached to some spiritual thing. But just time with the Lord, time in prayer, time reading the Bible, these are good disciplines, and we can have them in balance. That's not what I'm talking about, distractions. I'm talking about distractions that would take us away from those things. Distractions that would cause us to have a more complex line of thinking, to to constantly have this mental dialogue that's going and worrying about some things. And that's not going away either. We need to deepen our spiritual practices. We need to pray and emphasize the importance of prayer. And for some of us, praying is the hardest thing that we'll ever do. It's the hardest thing that I do. I want you to hear that, church. And this isn't new. I've shared this before. Prayer is the hardest thing in my life. I can write a book and read two books and that's not as hard as praying because there's something intimate about prayer and our, our mind fights it. It's in our mind. It fights it. So I have to pray out loud because if I'm praying in my mind, if I'm laying in the bed, I do pray at night in the bed, but I have to really almost verbally whisper the prayer because when I go to praying in my head any long period of time, next thing I know I'm talking to God about physics. Or I'm talking to God about, is the gate closed? <laughs> or I'm going through the to-do list for next week. And he don't need to hear all that. He knows it already. I'm not praying. It just You can see how our thoughts go? Just like, what? What was I doing? Oh, yeah, I was talking to my father. Bible study and community and fostering simplicity. Beloved, I think as a people, as a spiritual, spiritual family, we need, to, we need to listen to that. Not to always have the answer, not to explain to people what they need to be doing differently, but just listen. And when someone tells us about their trials, one of the things that we should be thinking about is there, is there a way that this person can simplify something in their life? Because there's something about my life that I can't see because I'm in the midst of it, but you can see it. But if we're not sharing life together, if we're not sharing, if all we're talking about are the chores and the shopping list, then we're not having time together at all. If all we're talking about is the next thing on the calendar, that's not life. I can talk to an AI bot with that. Siri will take care of that for me all day long. I'll never have to talk to another human being. Sometimes we have to share life to whatever degree we feel comfortable. Community is important. We also need to, as I spoke about last week, cultivate gratitude. We need to be thankful. We need to encourage shifting our focus from what is lacking to what is present. Let me say that again. We need to encourage ourselves and others to shift our focus from what is lacking to what is present. I need to say it one more time. (laughs) Shift our focus from what is lacking to what is present. Because what is present, there's much to be praised. What we have is something that we don't deserve. And we should thank God for it. Thank God for the 
nuanced idiosyncrasies. Thank God for the little trials. Thank God for the irritations. Thank God for the whole mess. My grandmother used to say that. I just thank God for the whole mess. And that was her way of not using profanity. And it was sort of like a stopgap measure. We're not having this. We're not doing this. You just thank God for the whole mess. And let's get on. You know, I can see her now. She'd get it. I never really understood that until I had a whole mess of my own. But being thankful. And these aren't new. We talked about them last week and the week before and the week before that. Another thing that we could do practically in the context of simplicity is we need to realize and remember that serving others can help us redirect our, our focus from ourselves to our community. <laughs> and I just wrote a whole lot over the last month about compassion. And that, I think, is one of the primary things that fuels compassion in our lives as believers is that we keep mindful the gospel and the compassion of Christ, as I talked about last week, and then we serve others through that same compassion. And the more we serve, we shouldn't do it out of feeling like we need to do more because that's complexity. We need to serve in a place of simplicity. I just want to help this person this one second, this one thing right here for this one time. And if they come back, make it one time. You see? Sometimes we compound our obligations to the point where they, even the joy of it is gone because it's overbearing. Rather than just simply saying, this time. And that's where forgiveness comes in, isn't it? Forgiveness says, oh, well, this is new. <laughs> Are you kidding me? They've said that same gross thing to you for 28 years. They've said that same thing to you for 53 years. They've treated you like that since you were a baby. Okay, forgiveness says, huh, this is new. But wisdom says, hey, there's a character issue I need to make you aware of. It's okay to be honest. And that's part of being simple. And they're not going to be, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy at all. But the final thing I want us to think about this morning in being simple is Psalm 4610. And you know the text. You may not know the reference. But Psalm 4610 says, Be still and know that I am God. And then it goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What's it mean to be still? We've talked about this a lot, beloved. Simply be still. Be present. Be mindful of the Lord. Be here, not somewhere else. Listen to what, not necessarily I'm saying, but listen to the truth behind it. Listen for it. Listen with expecting ears. One true thing is about our lives is that we are self-fulfilling prophets. And we have self-fulfilling prophecies. When we go into something looking for it in a certain way, we will find exactly what we're looking for. If we're looking for problems, hallelujah, we found them. If we're looking to be bored, you betcha. It's the way it works. 
the way it works. And so we need to reflect on this. Finding peace in God's presence. Be still and know that I am God is the simplest thing we could ever do in life. And beloved, you know what really brings that around for me? Is trauma, terror, and pain. Not during it, but after. After, it's like, oh, look. I mean, Hurricane Matthew scared us to death, tore our little property to pieces, ripped our roof off like, the, the, like a piece of paper. Water coming in, sheets down the walls. Trampoline was 12 feet up in the air, three feet from our bedroom. And after it was all done and we did not die, I had PTSD, literally PTSD, for a very long time when I heard thunder. It was like, I got sick. I got panicky. It's crazy. But after we cut that trampoline out of the tree, Robin wrote, be still and know that I am God. We were going to frame it, but it's hard to frame a trampoline canvas, even the little section of it. It's still out there in our garage. But see, that's when I know to be still is when things have been turned upside down. We need to get to the place where we live in such a way that that simple resting and stillness can be found in the beginning of the chaos. Does it change the circumstances? No, but it surely changes our position in it. And so, beloved, I want you to think about it, to apply these principles, to consider what it means to be content, for you to be content in your life. To consider what those distractions are, what relationships you need to encourage, that, that, that fostering simplicity together, Bible reading. I don't even heard a lot saying Bible study anymore because I believe we've got to read it first. We've got to read something to study it. And prayer. Being thankful. Serving other people. One step at a time. And reminding ourselves that God is near. That God is near. Isn't that so simple? But yet it is the hardest thing that we will ever do in life. And the only success we have is in the midst of finding that we're trying to be simple at the cost of life. <sighs> the only hope we have is the resting place of Christ. The body and the blood of Jesus given to us for the sake of our joy. Because only in the gospel do we find such peace. So that is my prayer for you, is that you would be established in the presence of God today and simplify your life. And I'd love to hear, share with me what you do to make your life simpler. Because I need the ammunition. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for loving us, for guiding us to truth, for helping us to see all of the promises that your word has given us. And Lord, that we are not guilty. We are not to be ashamed. We are not to be confronted with, with condemnation, but Lord, to be set free in our minds and in our lives in such a way that we can rejoice. Lord, teach us to be content. Teach us to be simple, to get the things out of our lives that we don't need. And Lord, to reframe the things that we want and the things that we do need that they may be a joy to us. And Father, we are grateful for the gospel. We are grateful for salvation. We are grateful for your love. And we are grateful because of Christ 
And we pray to you because of Christ. Amen.